you would turn to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, a very famous passage. You've heard it many times before, but I'm going to read this to us. Would you stand when you find Isaiah chapter 9? We're going to put it on the screen. And one more time, let's hear the word of the Lord to us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord, we could just end right now. But we believe that you have things that you'd like to say to us this morning through this text. I ask simply for ears to hear what you have to say. Please don't let us be like the people in Isaiah's day with ears who could not hear and would not hear. Please bless the reading of your word, we pray, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being seated. Well, one of my fondest memories brings me back to about age 11. Uh, I remember being in the back seat, the blue fabric back seat, of my grandma, grandparents, grandfather, grandmother's 1991 Cadillac Brome, light sapphire blue Cadillac Brome. This thing was spotless. This was a big body car. Uh, you know, I, I'm only 40, so I guess I can't say things like this, 41, but they don't make cars like that anymore. 
And it was a fond memory because my grandparents had visited Rhode Island where we grew up, and they decided, we decided that they were going to take us back to Florida with them. And so we get in the back of their car, my brother and me, my younger brother, and we drove uh, back to, to Florida with them and had a wonderful time. But the car had a cassette player on the, the big wood grain dash. And my grandmother kept a few cassettes on hand, uh, one of which was the 1968 album Bookends by Simon and Garfunkel. And my favorite song on that album was Mrs. Robinson, although to be fair, I didn't know at age 11 that it was probably the unofficial anthem of extramarital affairs. I guess I like the part where it says, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson, Jesus loves you, and so I like to hear that part. Uh, more than you will know. Well, I wasn't alive in the 60s, and I know some of you were, but uh, so much of the music produced in that era was just so good. And it was because, I think, it was birthed out of a very tumultuous time in America. Uh, you may know that the 60s were marked by turmoil. Uh, civil rights was in full force. The sexual revolution war and anti-war protests, incre in increasing uh, disillusionment with the governing authorities. And so this dark time was captured in music and in songs. And one of the songs that this dark time was captured in is reflected in one of those songs by Simon and Garfunkel, although maybe a less known song. But I was recently reminded of this song actually in a Christmas sermon. And the song's title is Seven O'Clock News, Silent Night. Now, if you've never heard that song, I encourage you to listen to it. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel begin their song with their rendition of Silent Night, the classic song Silent Night. But slowly fading in on the soundtrack of their, soundtrack of their voices is a simulation of the evening news recounting the events of a day in 1966 uh, by a newscaster. And the newscaster gives some different details. He says, there was a failure of the civil rights bill in Congress. There was the trial of a murderer of nine student nurses. Uh, Lenny Bruce, the comedian, died in an overdose death at age 42. Richard Nixon calling on Americans to support the war effort and that the greatest weapon against America is anti-war sentiment. The newscaster then says, that's the 7 o'clock edition of the news. Good night. And the song fades out. It's a haunting song. And I think the message portrayed by the song is that while the world at the time and the world today longs for, for peace, it longs for comfort, it longs for, for hope, it's clear, isn't it, that life is marked by darkness and by gloom. That was the case in the 60s. That's the case today. And it was the case in Isaiah's day, in this famous passage of Isaiah chapter 9. We've been considering the story that Isaiah happened to live in in the 8th century BC. God had called Isaiah to prophesy at a time in Judah's history, the southern kingdom, when Judah and wicked King Ahaz were in a pivotal moment and they were in a dark time because he, he and other kings had led the nation away from the Lord. 
And both kingdoms, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, had been led astray by the example of their leaders who who chased after foreign false gods and sought the wisdom of spiritists and mediums instead of the word of the Lord. So as a result, chapter 8 tells us that the Lord had hidden his face from all Israel. And Isaiah says that the Lord will judge you in due course, and he'll do so by sending the mighty Assyrian army to invade and pillage and to take captive most of the people. But as chapter 8 verse 22 says, instead of looking to the Lord for help, looking to the Lord for repentance, the people have looked to the earth for help. They've looked to human resources for relief from their burdens. But behold, Isaiah says, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, they are thrust into thick darkness. As someone maybe was here last week and they're saying, I thought last week was the problem of Christmas. And it was. We talked about the problem of Christmas. The reason why the world, friends, is in the condition that it is in today, and it's the same situation as it was in Isaiah's day, is that mankind has not stopped looking to the earth for help. As a race, we are a self-autonomous people. We are an independent people. We are a people who are opposed to God, and, and we wonder why the world is in the condition that it is this morning why the world is in such darkness this morning. And we saw last week that Isaiah came to prophesy to a world in darkness. And we saw that with him he brought his son, whose name meant a remnant shall return. Isaiah wanted, the Lord was saying through Isaiah that a remnant, the Lord always preserves a remnant. Those who heart, whose hearts God in his mercy continues to turn back, continues to preserve even in the midst of their own darkness. And though for many years this remnant wondered if God was going to make good on his promise to David, that he would never lack a man on the throne, and the prophets of the Old Testament, especially leading up to the birth of Christ, really struggled with this promise that God had made. God promises that he will preserve his people. And he gave Isaiah a glimpse into the the future. And he says to Isaiah here in chapter 9 that there will be a great restoration. And much to everyone's surprise, it will come through a child. Last week we talked about the problem. Today we're going to talk about the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas. Isaiah is saying here, friends, that behind the gloom and the darkness, a soundtrack is playing, just like Silent Night was sung in that song. And this is a song of hope. And far better than any surprise that you will open on Christmas morning, Isaiah tells us some surprising and wonderful and freeing news for the person who finds themselves in darkness this morning. Is that you? Do you find yourself consumed by the darkness? Well, if that's you, if you can say yes, 
You can say, I, can't, I just can't get myself out of the place that I'm in. It is, it is encroaching in on me. I'm struggling with variety, variety of things, and this time of year is too much for me. I can't handle the stress. Friends, if that is you, then the Lord has something to say to you. Now, I have two points for you this morning. The first is the light of Christmas, and the second is the wonder of Christmas. No, these are not Hallmark movies, although you probably could find, actually, Hallmark movies with that name. The light of Christmas and the wonder of Christmas. Let's look at these together. First, the light of Christmas, light. This passage is talking about light. Light can be a good thing or a bad thing, can't it? There's a kind of light that can ambush you, and there's a kind of light that can alleviate or relieve you. One year... Uh, I remember I, was, uh, I went to summer camp, and uh, I was a, a young kid, and we went to sleep, and, and that night, uh, in the middle of the night, I was roused from my sleep by uh, some older boys that had burst into our room, threw the lights on with, with uh, uh, water guns and, and shouting, and buckets of water, I think, were involved, and we were, we kids were just completely shocked awake by screaming and water, and that kind of light was terrible, and it did not serve me, and it did not improve my circumstances. It only made them worse. When Isaiah speaks here of a great light shining in verse 2, he's not talking about an ambushing light like that. He's speaking about an alleviating light, a relieving light, one that will rise upon a people who have long been in darkness. Now, who are these people? Well, he tells us in verse 1 that these people are those who live in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, what does that matter to us? Well, these are the two tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom that were the first to fall to the mighty Assyrian army. This would happen in the years between the years 733 and 722, when the two smoldering firebrands we looked at last week, Isaiah, excuse me, Israel and Syria, would, uh, would, were invaded and would fall to the mighty Assyrian army. And Ahaz is back down south, and he's going to watch all of this happen, or his people are going to watch this happen. But notice that Isaiah is speaking in the past tense here. As far as God is concerned, though the invasion is going to happen in the future, though the invasion is, is imminent in the future, God has already ordained destruction. This is why verse 1 says that he has brought them into contempt. This will be an ambushing light. It it will come in the form of, of torches and swords and javelins. If there were TVs in those days, in just a few short years, the newscaster would announce on the evening news the invasion and seizure of the people of Israel due north of Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 2, when Isaiah refers to a land of deep darkness, this is, a, uh, in the original, a very strong word. This word means something like the death darkness or the death-like shadow. So Advent sermon number 2, Tolkien reference number 2. Whenever I hear the words death and shadow, I can't help but think of Frodo and Sam, who had finally made it to Mordor in the, uh, the Return of the King, and Mount Doom is in their sights. Both of them are exhausted. Frodo, because he's been carrying around the One Ring all this time, and he just can't handle it anymore. Sam, because he just rescued Frodo from the Tower Dungeon by the sheer force of his will. And the only thing that lies between them and getting rid of the ring is this vast forsaken valley as black as death. 
It's the death shadow. And friends, today our world is much like that valley, the Valley of Mordor. People, people everywhere are walking about in a deep spiritual darkness under a sun that is slowly but surely burning out. And people are getting by like Sam by sheer force of will, relying on their defiant strength, but at some point, everyone realizes that their strength is actually weakness. No human being has the power to pull themselves up out of their own distress and darkness and gloom, try though they may, and successful though they may temporarily be. These are sustained only by the thought of next weekend or the next day off, or the next holiday. And so they buy gifts, they bake cookies, they sing the carols, they go to parties. But apart from a greater light shining on them in their hearts, as C.S. Lewis once famously said, it is always winter and never Christmas. News reports will always bring stress. Family situations will often way down. That's the death shadow. That's the death shadow. And it is into this situation that God gives Isaiah the foresight to see beyond the news reports. In verses 2 to 3, Isaiah describes a time of great joy coming on a people who are dwelling in the land of deep darkness. And, and for all the grammar buffs in here, he, he uses verbs that are in the perfect tense. You know that if a verb's in the perfect, it, it means it's an action that's been perfected. It's been completed. It's been finished. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. In the Greek, it's one word, and it's in the perfect, to telestai, coming from the Greek word teleos, which means end, completion. Jesus was saying, it is done. There's no more work to be done. It is finished. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. In other words, he's, he's so certain, he's so sure that these are going to happen that even though Isaiah knows Assyria is getting ready to march on God's people, he can see that God has prepared a hope and a fixed future for those who will trust in him. This future, verses 3 to 5 says, is characterized by joy and freedom. When he says you have multiplied, for example, the nation, guys, listen, in times of war, people don't have kids. They wait till afterwards, okay? It's too risky. This is post-war Isaiah is talking about. These people are rejoicing like when they bring food in from the harvest and when they divide the spoils of war among the people. Isaiah then gives three explanatory fours, F-O-R, in verses 4, 5, and 6. He's telling us, the reason why they can expect this glorious future. And in short, here's what he wants to tell us, God will bring it about himself. God himself will break the yoke on his people's back. God himself will snap the rod their oppressors use to strike their shoulders. And he will do this in a way, Isaiah says, similar to the way he did it, on the day of Midian. Now, what's that? Well, this is a reference to Gideon back in Judges chapter 6 and 7. I won't turn there, but you can look at that yourself. God called Gideon to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. 
but God defeated them in, the, in a most unconventional way. Gideon's army numbered 33,000 warriors. But God looked at that army and he said, this is too many men. And so God sent all but 300 home. And he did that because he says, when you get the victory, I don't want anybody saying, look at what I did. So God sent every man home except that 300. Gideon's 300 then came to the Midianite camp, not with swords, not with shields and javelins, but with a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other other hand covered by a clay pot. How's that for an implement of war? And at Gideon's command, he, they smashed the, the, the pots. They blew the trumpets. The Midianites were shocked by the burst of light and the noise that they began killing each other until the whole army is dead. What's Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying that God is going to come to deliver you by unconventional means, without human strength. And by a burst of light, he will ambush his enemies and he will alleviate your suffering. In fact, he will bring such a total end to your enemies that verse 5 says, the only thing you're going to have to do is to walk the battlefield and collect the implements of war, the boots and the garments, and you'll be able to burn those as fuel to heat your supper. Friends, you ever wonder why Christmas time is characterized, marked by light. It's not a harsh light, is it? It's a soft, glowing light. That's why I hate those LED lights. Why, why do they get rid of incandescent lights? They're just, ugh. Soft, glowing Christmas lights. Candle light. Fireplace light. Why is Christmas marked by light? People have been doing this since the 16th century. It began with Martin Luther. I told you the story before. Martin Luther was walking home one evening in a winter night, and he was putting a sermon together in his mind. Smart guys can do that. And uh, he was looking at the, 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 the lights coming through the trees from the stars. And so he went home, and he said, guys, i got to reproduce this for you. So he brought a tree into his house. He lit a bunch of candles, and he put them on the, the very first Christmas tree. But since then... We put up lights at Christmas. Why? Well, tradition. Yeah, sure. We do that because the light brings something to us. Brings hope. Brings comfort. Brings peace. That's a feeling we have when we're sitting by the Christmas tree, right? Friends, for centuries, the world has been desperate to bring hope to its darkness. But it never lasts. God is saying through Isaiah, I can give you that hope. I can alleviate your suffering. I can give you that provision and that joy and that freedom. But here's the thing. I'm going to do it through unconventional means. I'm going to do this without human strength. I'm going to do this with weakness, with human weakness. All the, all the things that you've been looking to for comfort. Chapter 8, verse 22 has a phrase that says, looking to the earth. All the ways that you have been looking to the earth to bring you comfort will disappoint you in the end. And the peace and the joy that is brought by the season and the parties and the friendships, that's going to all let you down. And when the party ends, you'll be plunged right back into the darkness. 
Isaiah says you need a light so certain, so sure, so fixed, so permanent, so lasting that not even January can swallow it up. Doesn't that sound good? Beloved, this is, this is God's promise to his people. And that leads us to that second point, the wonder of Christmas, the wonder. As I said in the beginning, God will do all of this through a child. You don't get much more helpless than a baby. Joy and hope has filled the land because God liberated the nation through a child. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The Gospel of Matthew says that, that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, it fulfilled this passage. And if you read Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, you'll find that Jesus began his ministry in the very place that Isaiah 9-1 says that the light will first shine, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali in Galilee. And the government will be on his shoulder. He will bear the governing authority over God's people. But unlike every king before him, unlike Ahaz, unlike even David himself, this child will be divine. Now you have to understand something here. To the Jews, they did not see their kings as divine. Most every other nation saw their kings as divine. The Jews would never do that. The Jews saw only God as divine. The men that God put in power were just his representatives. So what Isaiah is saying here is rather shocking to a person who has heard it for the first time in the 8th century B.C. Isaiah gives him a fourfold name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know about you, but I cannot help but hear the Handel's Messiah when I hear that. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. I won't get into it because I can't sing, but that's what I hear. This fourfold name given to this child. The first two names, you'll note, go together, and they describe who he is. They describe his character. The second two names go together, and they describe what he gives. They describe his conduct. So who is this divine king? What does he do? First, he's a wonderful counselor. That literally means a wonder of a counselor. This is a reference to the supernatural wisdom that this child will have. And what a contrast to the failed wisdom of Ahaz who relied on human means. This child is the wisdom of God, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. But this child doesn't merely know what to do. He will carry out God's will perfectly even as he upholds all things by the word of his power. I love that line in the Sovereign Grace song. It talks about Mary holding her son, even while he uphold her and all things by the word of his power. He's the mighty God. There it is. This child has the same name and qualities as Isaiah will later ascribe to Yahweh in chapter 10. Why? Because he is God. And as God, this child, this son, 
has all the power that he needs to defeat his enemies, to defeat the Midianites, to defeat the Assyrians, to defeat the Romans, to defeat sin, to defeat death. He's mighty God. He's everlasting Father. Now, that's a bit odd. Is Isaiah saying that the Son and the Father are the same, but that the Son will just be a, a, a representation or a mode of the Father? Well, no, that would be modalism that was condemned as a heresy in the 4th century A.D. No, this designation would not have been missed by Isaiah's readers. Israel's king served as a sort of father to the people in order to provide security and care for the people. So when Isaiah says that this son is an everlasting father, he's saying that he has always existed and that he will perpetually provide for and protect his people. Finally, he's the Prince of Peace. He's the ruler that we've all been waiting for, the one who can finally administer peace to his people. But as I said, it'll be through unconventional means. He will administer peace, not with military might, but how? By stepping into the death shadow. The peace that the Prince of Peace brings is first reconciliation between God and man. And he brought it by the shedding of his own blood for the sin that brought on the death shadow. Now, Isaiah will unpack this later in Isaiah 53, but in a very real sense, when the Son is given, Isaiah says, he is given as a substitute, one who will bear their sin without having sin and bring peace between them and God. And verse 7 says, in God's zeal, he will do this. In his passionate, consuming commitment to fulfill his purpose, to save his people, to let nothing hurt or destroy them. Friends, you see, in Isaiah's day, Many thought that God went back on his promise. And maybe some of you have wondered if God has gone back on his promises. But Isaiah's trying to say he hasn't gone back on his promises. He's just done it in a way that you didn't expect. He liberates with a child because God does not liberate through human strength. Yet only a human child who is in every way God can liberate humans. Tim Keller says at Christmas, God got a body. Why? Because in order for God to save this physical world, he had to become physical. He had to become tangible. He had to become touchable. Friends, God cares so much about this dark physical world that he stooped down to enter it so he might take to his back and shoulders the rod of our oppressors to fairly, fully bear the yoke of our burdens so that he might replace it with his own burden, which is easy and light. This is a gentle child, a lowly child. One of the most beautiful poetic descriptions of the incarnation that I've seen comes from R.G. Lee, a Baptist preacher. Let me read this to you. He says, Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom and in time 
rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom. Clasping the ancient of days, who had become the infant of days. What deep descent. From the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From exaltation to humiliation. From the throne to the tree. From dignity to debasement. From worship to wrath. From the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the Creator, born of the creature, Woman, but in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. Ray City Church, do you know why the incarnation, the infleshing of the God-man is so wonderful? It's wonderful because God did this for people who did not ask for him to come, who sought for help in every counselor but him, and who, in fact, in their brokenness, raged against him, 821 says, and in so doing, brought darkness on themselves. Friends, isn't this what Romans 5, 6 to 10 says? Take special note of the kinds of people that the child, that the Christ came for. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. What, what's the wonder of Christmas? A lot of wonderful things happened at Christmas. It's a wonder that Caesar Augustus was moved by the hand of God, the most powerful ruler in the world, to call for a census just so Jesus could be born in Bethlehem in the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. It's a wonder that Jesus was born of a virgin. The harmonious union of divine and human was the only way for him to maintain his sinlessness and still walk in our shoes. It's a wonder that God moved the baby Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt up to Nazareth to Galilee to preserve his life from Herod and to fulfill scripture. It's a wonder that God moved a star in the east to lead a group of magi, royal counselors, to him so that they would become the first Gentiles to worship him. It's a wonder that the host of angels announced his birth to shepherds, the lowliest of society, 
as a picture of the kind of people that the Savior has come for. But in all of that, that's not the greatest wonder. The greatest wonder of Christmas is that God sent his son, the child, to people in darkness. God's enemies who deserve death. And he sent them so that his light wouldn't ambush them like the Midianites, but that his light would relieve them. That his unending grace and love and care could shine on them. And all of this was through a child. Raised in the backwater of Galilee, who died as a criminal for his enemies. And he did this so that none of us could say, look what I've done. My friend, is, that, is grace wonderful to you this morning? Does verses three and four describe you this morning? I wonder if some of us here have had the light of the gospel shine on us. So I'm speaking to Christians. But yet there is still a sort of shadowy darkness that rests upon you. And it's because you struggle to believe God's grace in Jesus is really this lavish. Does verse 3 describe you? Is there joy in your heart from knowing that God has come to you when you weren't looking for him? That he rescued you when you didn't want to be rescued, when you were kicking and screaming? Maybe some of us have been taken captive by the Santa syndrome. If I'm just a good boy, I'm just a good girl, maybe God will give me good things. And so I'll try my best. I'll, I'll spend more time trying to be good. I'll, I'll do whatever I can do to try to make God happy, always, always really knowing that he's probably going to pass me by because I haven't been good. I know I haven't been good. Kids, you know you haven't been good. Adults, you know you haven't been good. I have not been good. And so, friends, we can't imagine that God would set his affection on someone like me after all I've done, after all the ways I look to the earth, relying on my own defiant strength. You feel that way today? Friends, listen to Isaiah speak to you then. For unto you a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Men and women and boys and girls who dwell in the death shadow of our own doing. Upon us a light has dawned. Jesus Christ is the alleviating light. He's not the, the ambushing light. He's the light that comes to people who by sheer force of will have tried to make it through the darkness on their own. So often we are like Sam Wise Gamgee, aren't we? who through our own grit and muscle get ourselves out of bad situations until we realize, oh my gosh, I have another valley of death to cross. When will it be enough? Some of you are asking, when will it be enough? When will it be good enough? 
when will my strength get me through? I have another valley. That victory from yesterday means nothing today. We need a light. This child is that light. This child leads us through the death shadow. He is our only hope. Remember that happened to Sam? When he saw a single white star in that black sky as he laid down there with that valley before him? Here's what he said. Here's what Tolkien says about his Sam. It says, the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. You know, the reality is this. Until we cross the valley of tears and we see Jesus face to face, there will always be a death valley in front of us. Someone says, well, that's pretty miserable. What we have to understand about the work of Christ is that he has delivered us from the power of sin and death. But the presence of sin and the presence of death will be removed at some point still in the future when he returns. Until then, we will face the darkness. You and I will face the darkness. Sam and all of God's children by faith in Jesus can walk through the valley of darkness, the death shadow, only when we recognize that our defiant strength will not bring us through. Our can-do attitude will not bring us through. You know what will bring us through? It's when we look away to a love that turns enemies into friends that is given to people who messed up this morning and continues to draw us back. It's that kind of love, friends, that makes us gloriously self-forgetful and deeply untroubled. Now someone says, self-forgetful, how, how, how could I do that? Isn't that the problem? Don't I need to love myself more? No, friends, every time we look to the earth, every time we love ourselves, Gloom will only be the result because there's nothing good in you to pull you up out. It is in forgetting ourselves that gloom and fear and trouble cease. Why? Because only when we decrease does Jesus increase. Does that light shine all the brighter? Then he becomes truly the counselor, 
the wonder of a counselor who fulfills God's word in us. The mighty God who liberates us from the power and someday the presence of sin. The everlasting father who will never ever stop caring for us. And the prince of peace who by shedding his own blood for us brings us to God forever. Now not one person in this room who's saved has received that by being clever or by being good or by being smart or by doing well. If that's true of you, it's because you stopped looking at yourself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to become small in our own estimation so something far more glorious can take the stage of our hearts and shine on our lives? That's what the gospel does, brothers and sisters. That is liberating. That is freeing. That's the opposite of darkness and gloom. So friends, this Christmas, the question for us is what is the soundtrack playing behind the events of our lives? Mm. Is it silent night, holy night? All is calm and all is bright? Or is it darkness and gloom? Hello, darkness, my old friend. Friends, let's humble ourselves. Let's humble ourselves and behold, behold the one who came to free us from ourself and make us truly self-forgetful. Amen.